for you <laughs> so you can teach us so uh, ice cream is powerful that's ice what I learned powerful. isn't that a fun story it is you know a lot of science has been inspired by things like ice cream mm -hmm. yeah, and need and it's, and and it's exciting well it's uh, it's really a pleasure to welcome everyone here today and this is kind of a, a different Episode. Can we call them episodes? Mm -hmm. Sure can. Can we call them chapters? Yes. What else can we it's call them? It's your show. Can we call them shows? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good because I sh shows you. You shows mm -hmm. us. Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's the play on words. Okay. But actually, I really want to talk about something very significant today, and I think that um, I want to start by helping you understand why I want to talk about this and why it's so important. And I'd like to get right down to it because there's a lot to be said. Um, we live in the digital age. Now, I actually was born in the Iron Age, <laughs> came up through the Brass Age. In the Bronx. Yeah, rode, we used to ride dinosaurs. In fact, that was an Olympic event back then. <laughs> no, but it's, it's interesting that we are in a new world called the digital world. And everything in our world somehow connects to digital, meaning computers. Uh, we have our networks. We're always connected. We We almost don't think we can live without them. And in many ways, we can't. But I have a real concern about our digital world. It has taken off so fast and become so popular and technology has evolved so quickly that very few people really understand what's going on and how it works. And that really troubles me. It seems like most people have just decided this is something I cannot understand, so I won't. As long as I know how to use it, that's enough. Right? Mm -hmm. That's right? And it's fascinating because I'm now seeing programmers and teachers of computer science that shockingly don't really understand the basics of, of how it all happens. And you ask them, well, how, how, does it, how does a computer do that? I don't know. And they're fine with that. Mm -hmm. I'm not. I'm not. I believe that it's important that a person that grows up in our modern world learn how to read. Reading and writing is really, really important to all kinds of things you're going to want to do during your lifetime. But now, in this new age, it's also becoming very important that you know how to code. 
You understand computers. You know how to code. It's almost as important as literacy of reading. And as a result of that, we got some catching up to do, especially since these computers came on the scene so fast that a lot of our, our older generation didn't have a chance to learn about them because they weren't around. When I went to school, hmm, we didn't have calculators. When I went to the university, we would solve problems with a slide rule. And some of you say, a what? <laughs> you mean the golden rule? No, the slide rule. A slide rule was an instrument that's kind of like a ruler, but it had an inner part that would slide back and forth. And with that slide rule, we would be able to solve chemistry and physics problems. We could multiply. We could divide. We... And yet, somewhere during my college, about in the middle, calculators arrived, electronic calculators. And all of a sudden, we were able to use a calculator instead of a slide rule. It made solving problems a hundred, if not a thousand times easier. It was a big step. And calculators are digital. And, and from there, all of these things begin to happen, and it's really important. I would be very pleased if today we could go out of this discussion with everybody understanding basically how a computer works. Now, there are a lot of things that have happened to, to computers. If you take the Evan Rood example of Tobias, you know, he started out with a car, melting ice cream, wanting to save a relationship that was on the rocks, if she spilled it. So, so he went ahead and made his motor, and then he kept improving it and improving it and improving it. Well, that's what we've done with computers. Without a doubt, today, this very day that we're, we're doing this discussion, thousands of enhancements have been made to computers over the world. They just evolve at such an incredible pace. So they get more and more and more powerful, more and more and more complicated, more and more complex. And that's fine. They should continue to do that. But you can't even get in the ball game in the digital age if you don't understand the basic concept, the most basic concept. And so I thought, wow, I kind of was given the privilege of coming right up through this. My education was just at the right time to be able to get involved in this industry at a very early day. And I got to look at this from the perspective of the guys that, that started it. And I would like to see if we can share that kind of insight with you so that you can say, I, yeah, I do kind of get how they work. And then after we're successful today, we could do 100 more discussions where we add complexities onto it and make it more powerful and more usable. And we may or may not do some of that. Probably will, because it's neat. <laughs> it's really, really neat. But the important thing is, once you understand the foundation, then you can learn other things and have a place to put them. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. If you have a box of puzzle pieces, and you were foolish, so you bought one where the picture is just an all-blue ocean, all the same color. 
thought, well, that I love blue. Let's get that one. <laughs> no, no, no. You want one with all these different shapes, colors, so you can sort the pieces out and find them. But if you had one that's all a blue ocean, and you open the box, and there's 1,500 pieces. And so you pick up a piece, and you pick up another piece, and you hold them up in the air and see if you can figure out how to put them together. And then another one, and another one. Well, it turns out that you have to kind of have a strategy to solve a puzzle like that. And a lot of us start out by being clever. Do any of these puzzle pieces have one flat side? Because if they do, then that goes around the outside. So we gather up all the flat ones, and then we try and build the perimeter. And then we build in. That's our strategy. But we have a place now to put the pieces, and yeah, we have to wait for the right turn. Well, in the digital era, we need that foundation. We need a simple place to start putting what we're learning about this. And most people don't start there. And so it's like trying to put a puzzle together with your hands up in the air. You need a table, and you need to settle down and get a perimeter and build in. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, before we get into the exciting finale of this discussion, I want to put it in context. So when I was at the university, um, I had just won the science fair. And then I won the gold and silver medal at the International Science Fair, and that's how I was paying for college. They gave me a scholarship. And so what did I want to do when I graduated? I wanted to make hydrogen cars for the world. I had the world's first hydrogen car, and now I wanted to, to be able to build them so everybody could have them. It's a dream that's just starting finally to come true. Well, so I majored in chemistry, Physics, electrical engineering, chemical engineering, and mechanical engineering. And I had a reason for every one of those because it would be part of what I wanted to do with the car. Now, it turned out that I built my hydrogen engine for high school science fair. And the idea was when you burn hydrogen, you just get pure water. So there'd be no pollution. But then, to be a good little scientist, I captured the exhaust from the hydrogen Model A, and I tested it on a gas chromatograph, which is an instrument that just measures what's in there. And there was some big, ugly ingredient besides water. And that ingredient turned out to be nitrogen dioxide. And what happened is inside the engine, air, which is made up of oxygen and hydrogen, was heated and reacted and formed nitrogen dioxide, which reacts with water in the air and becomes nitric acid. That, that was a bummer. That was really, really bad news. And so I went to the science fair. Here's the air that's going to, or the car that's going to cling the air, but it makes pollution. Now, a lot of you would say, well, that's discouraging. That's, that's when you should have been smart enough to give up. And what do they say? When your experiment gives you lemons, make lemonade, right? So here I am now. I'm a freshman at the university. That's the very first year. I'm going to school. I have a science fair project. It's going to change the world, but it didn't because it had pollution. Oh, no. Maybe I should get another project. Or maybe I can make lemonade. And you know how I made lemonade? 
We didn't have word processors, so I got a typewriter, and I typed a report. And I explained how wonderful it will be to have pollution-free cars. And I believe that hydrogen could be the fuel for pollution-free cars. We just need to get a little bit smarter. So what I'm proposing is that we set up a laboratory here at the university to experiment with ways of getting rid of the nitric oxide. And then I sent it to Ford Motor, director of research. I didn't know him, <laughs> but I was able to find the address for Ford, and I sent it to him, and he wrote me a letter back. And he says, we've looked at your proposal, and we see that you're looking for funding. I told him how much it would cost to do this research. After all, I was, you know, a freshman, <laughs> fresh out of high school. And uh, he said, we'll do it. We'll fund it for you. And they sent me a contract. Only they wouldn't let me sign it. They said it had to be signed by the vice president of the university. <laughs> hmm. How am I going to get him to sign that? I didn't ask him if I could send out the proposal. I just thought, this is a good idea. <laughs> so I did what any good, ambitious science students would do. I went and met his secretary. Hi. <laughs> I need to get this contract signed for Ford Motor Company. Oh, OK, just put it right there. Come back tomorrow. OK. So I came back tomorrow. It was all nice and signed. I didn't get to meet the vice president, but I had his signature. Aha! And I mailed it back to Ford. And I'm ready to go to work. So I need a laboratory. Where am I going to do my research? Well, the contract with Ford said the university was going to give me a laboratory. I didn't suggest. They just put it in there. And so I was a freshman. I didn't have a, a professor yet. You get those next year. So I went back to the secretary of the vice president. And I said, uh, quick question, where's my laboratory? Your laboratory? Yeah, the contract says I get a laboratory. I'm just wondering how I get the key and where is it? A laboratory? Who's your professor? I don't have one yet. I'm just a freshman. You're a freshman? What's this contract? Well, I wrote a proposal. Oh, no. I got to meet the vice president. <laughs> and he helped me find a professor. Mm -hmm. And my contract had enough money to pay the professor to help me, which that was very nice of Ford. And so while I'm going to school, I'm making lemonade out of those lemons. What if that car had been pollution-free? I wouldn't have got a contract to get rid of the pollution. And so we made lemonade. Well, that's kind of how this thing works. But when I was trying to get rid of that pollution, uh, I had some money. I had a laboratory. I had very little college training. So how do you get rid of the pollution? Maybe you can think it away. Nope, still there. Still there. So. I realized I needed to try a bunch of different things. I needed different ideas to try. But building engines to test them, that was a lot of work. So I heard that the Navy, the United States Navy, had developed a program that would run on a computer 
that would simulate chemical reactions inside an engine. And so I wrote them, and they sent me, I just paid for the cards, they sent me three boxes of punch cards that had a program on them that would run in the big giant mainframe computer at the university. And I had money to buy computer time from Ford. Thank you, Ford. I could afford it. <laughs> so I started running this analysis program. And I would get to tell it, OK, let's try it if we have more air and less hydrogen. Then will there be pollution? Let's try it. And I, I came up with all these different ideas we could try. And I kept getting these results. If you do that, then this is what the exhaust will be. And it wasn't guaranteed. It was a prediction. But it actually turned out to be pretty accurate because on some of the more interesting ones, I ended up building them. Well, nitric oxide is caused when you heat air up. Lightning causes nitric oxide. And the tiny amount from thunderstorms is the nitrogen we need to keep our, our cornfields green. So it's good. But the amount from automobiles is the smog in, in Los Angeles, for example, that we had such a problem with. And the Clean Air Act reduced that quite a bit. But it's still a problem. So anyway, this program allowed me to try different things. I tried different mixtures of hydrogen. Some of those lowered it a little bit because it slowed it down in how fast it burned, which means it didn't get so hot. And it turned out to be how hot it got is how much nitric oxide you had. And then I got this idea. What if I spray droplets of water, you know, water mist, in with the hydrogen before I ignite it? What would that do? And to my great pleasure, it eliminated the nitric oxide. The little droplets were in there when the flame was going through the chamber. And as the flame would come on, it hit a water droplet. The water droplet would explode into steam. It would give off a lot of pressure. And it would cool down the flame. So by changing the amount of water, I could make it so that there was less than a part per million of nitric oxide, which was wonderful. That was better than the air in many places. And then I even put more water in, and the program came back and says, hey, this won't even run. <laughs> Murphy. I don't know why it was Murphy, but it said that. So I went back. Well, anyway, I ended up putting a water induction system on the intake of my engine. And then we went the clean air race of the General Motors Proving Grounds. Now, that wasn't fair with Ford Motor money. But we went to GM for the clean air race between all the universities. And we won first place with a hydrogen car. But it was done with a computer. And that's where I became exposed to computers. That's where I began to get interested. That's where I began to realize the power that they had. And what I found out is that computers can do amazing things. Someone over at uh, Intel, and actually it was a group of someone's, invented the microprocessor. This is a one chip that's a whole computer. It used to be a whole big refrigerator crate that would be the central processing unit. And they put it all in one little chip. And that was just a few years before I became interested in computers, just when I was getting ready to go to, to college. But lo and behold, 
uh, people didn't realize what they could do with these little microprocessors. There was a company called Altair in New Mexico, Albuquerque, New Mexico, New Mexico, Mexico, <laughs> Albuquerque, New Mexico, that built a little toy computer, and it was a CPU inside, and it had a whole bunch of LED lights and switches. And you could flip these switches and then put execute, and it would turn on some lights. And then you could change them a little bit and do it again, and it would turn on a light. It wasn't really a personal computer because you couldn't type into it. You couldn't see a display. It was a light blinker. It wasn't shaped like a Christmas tree, so I don't think we'll call it a Christmas tree, but it would blink lights. And I got one. Only I didn't get Altair. A company copied them called MSI, and theirs was a little bit neater looking, so I got an MSI. And this was before there were any personal computers. And I got one, and I started blinking lights. Da -da -da -da. By the way, don't turn it off. If you turn off the power, and you put any kind of program, it's gone. There was no disk. There was no way to store anything. So you could do it until the power went off. Then it was all gone. Then you have to start putting in it. You have to put everything in by flipping all the lights. Well, it inspired me. And from that machine, I learned what I want you to learn today. I learned the basics of how these computers really work. And from that, I went ahead and I was very privileged to work on the team, in fact, to be the head of the team, that built the world's very first personal computer. This is before Apple. And actually, it'd probably be fun to show a picture, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. So this is the first Billings computer. And there it is. You can see there's a terminal. The top unit is the central processor. We call it the BC-404. The bottom unit is two floppy drives. When you add the terminal, the keyboard, the floppy drives, then you had a personal computer. And that's the first one that ever did it. There were terminals before this. There was disk storage. But there were big mainframes that were for 1,000 people to use at once. This is the first time in history that anyone made a computer that was just dedicated to a single user. And I made it to test another invention, my idea for client-server computing. But yeah, that was the first one. Now, I want to I wanna get into this basic concept of how they work. And a lot of you have a lot of ideas. I, I won't embarrass anybody by asking you to raise your hands, but I wonder how many say, you know what? Really down at the basic level, I don't get it. I heard there's some ones, there's some zeros, and this. I, I, I just don't get it. Well, I want you to get it. So are you brave enough to go on a journey with me to see what we can do? Mm -hmm. Okay, I have prepared a basic computer on a piece of paper, and I want to bring this up for you here. And we're going to kind of go through this thing. I don't want it to be too intimidating, so let's go through it kind of slowly. Along this side is a thing that I'm calling memory. And you've heard about computer memory. You know, how much is your computer? Well, mine's got 640K, mine's got 600 terabytes. Okay, well, it's how many little boxes you have to store information. Now, in my memory, I have these little green things, and they just happen to be compasses. 
and I just happen to have a North Pole manipulator. Okay, I want you to watch what happens to this memory when I bring my magnet by it. You see how I'm changing the memory? Okay, that's how memory works. There are many kinds of memory, and we're not going to get into any of the details because we don't have time today, but memory can be magnetized or demagnetized, and that's true of some memory. There's a lot of kinds of memory now. I mean, like we have some memory where we actually shoot little holes in it with lasers, but in general, uh, it can be magnetized or demagnetized, and so... At memory location one, we can say, okay, that's magnetized. So it, it says the North Pole is shooting up. And I can turn it around. Oh, now it says the South Pole is shooting up. And so by magnetizing or demagnetizing, I can store information there. I can store a number. Does that make sense? So all memory is is a lot of little mailboxes where we can put a number. That's all it is. And the more mailboxes you have, the more numbers you can store. That's not too complicated, is it? Okay, good. Now let's go over here to the next part. This is the CPU. CPU, they have all these acronyms. I found out when we got into the computer field and we were making stuff, I found out how these acronyms came into existence. They literally come up with letters they like, and then they try and figure out words to go with them. That's it's too often true, but this one is central processing unit, CPU, central processing unit. So this is kind of the calculator, the brains of the computer, and it really is a whole bunch of transistors, thousands, then hundreds of thousands, then millions, and now billions of transistors in one little chip, okay? So what have we got inside our CPU? Well, we have a register. A register, B register, C register. Now, quite often, the A register in a CPU is called the accumulator. But it's just a register. And what is a register? It's a memory location, just like memory. It's a place you can stick a number. And you say, well, wait a minute. Why do I need a place inside the CPU to stick a number if I've got all this memory out here? And the answer is because in the CPU, you're going to do something with that number. Like maybe you're going to do arithmetic. But you can't do it unless it's inside the CPU where all those little transistors can, can multiply, can divide, can add. So if I wanted to do some arithmetic, I would have to get a number from memory and put it in these registers. And then I could do arithmetic. Now, every CPU, every CPU has a thing called an instruction set. And what is an instruction set? Well, it's a list of capabilities. It's like a menu. You go into a restaurant and they have a menu of everything you can order. I want a cheeseburger, I want fries, I want a chocolate shake, I want ketchup, lots of ketchup. So you order off the mem memory. In a CPU, which is the heart of a computer, you have instructions. And you say, what does this instruction do? 
and they tell you. What is that instruction? And you learn all, you get a whole book on the big CPUs. They have so many instructions that you can choose that you can do all kinds of things. What are the instructions? Well, could be something like, drive me to L.A. Well, computers don't, well, I guess they can drive you to L.A. now. <laughs> but really, they're instructions that make you do things inside the CPU. And, and I've given you a standard list of real simple instructions. You'll notice that I have called this first instruction star one. Why did I call it star one? So you wouldn't confuse it with memory location one. See, every memory location has a number so we can keep track of it. Memory location one, memory location two. Now I'm gonna do instructions. These are the instructions that the CPU understands. If you give it that instruction, it will do it. So I'm calling it star one so you can remember, this isn't memory, this is an instruction. And so star one says move whatever number you give it to register A. So let's just think about that. If I were to say move whatever's in memory location one to A, it would see if there's a number here and it would copy that number over into the A register. You see how simple that instruction is? The next one says, instruction number two says, if you use this instruction, it's gonna move whatever is in some memory location, and you just put in the number of the memory location you want, whatever's in 10, and put it into B. So I can take any memory location just by putting the memory number right in there, by putting the memory number in there, and by choosing instruction star one, it will take the value that's located there in memory and put it in a register. And then I get down to instruction number three. I'm given this computer power by programming my transistors so it will do these things, these simple functions. Star three instruction says move whatever is in the memory location you choose to C. So I can get any number in any of these memories and put it in any of these registers, A, B, or C and computers have a lot more registers or internal memories. That's all these are is little internal mailboxes that you put stuff in. So what we're saying is you have an instruction that says go over to a, a particular mailbox, the one that I put in that blank right there, that's the one I want you to go to. I put a five there, you go in five, you get whatever number's in five, and let's see, instruction two says, and you put it in B. Does that make sense to everybody? Because you have to kind of understand that if you want to see where this is going to go. And you say, so what? So I can get a number out of a mailbox and put it in a register. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's going to be cool. Because then you start getting into instructions like number four. Star four says, add whatever number's in A to whatever number's in B and put the answer in register C. So if I could get a number out of here and put it in A, and if I get a different number out of here and put in B, and then if I run star four, and when I say run it, what you actually do is you tell the CPU, do star four. And you actually do that with a program. You can type it on the keyboard, or you can type it and save it and have it run down a file. And it'll execute each instruction one at a time. 
So down here, I have a sample program, okay? And what I'm saying is, first of all, do instructions star two. And the CPU says, oh no, instructions star, star two. I know what that is. What is that? And so it comes and looks. Oh, star two says that I'm supposed to move whatever is in blank mailbox. Oh, but it said mailbox three. See, the program told me which mailbox, and it says I'm supposed to move that to B. So I go over to three and see if there is a number stored there. Oh, there is a number stored there. Voila. Someone put it there. Using these instructions and others, they were able to get a number there. So my program says star two. I look at star two, star two, move whatever is in mm, memory location three. And I find, oh, it's 12. Move it to register B. So now B is 12. And if you know over here, we have a note beside the program that says, now B is 12. 12 is inside of B. Is this making sense? Okay, let's, we finished that step of the program. Let's do the next one. The next step says, program instruction star one. Oh, what's that? Star one. It says, move whatever's in there. It says, from memory location one, move that to A, register A. So we've got to go to memory location one. Is there a number there? Oh, there's a five. So this instruction says move memory location one, which is five, to B. Excuse me, to A, because it's instruction number one. So it says move it to A. Two, move it to B. Three, move it to C. We're happened to be on instruction number one. So five gets moved into A. So we have five here, 12 there. Then we get down here, and it says instruction four. Well, instruction four says add whatever's in A to whatever's in B and put the answer in C. So now, when we execute that step, these two numbers get added together inside the CPU, and the answer's put here. And so you look. We put a, dwell, a 12 into B, because we got it from 3, because it says get it from 3. We got a 5 from memory location 1, because it says memory location 1. And we put it into A, and then we did add A and B and put the answer in C. So now C has a number in it, and the number is 17. So we have a program. We now know how to program. We have registers. We understand what's going on inside the computer. But look, there's another step here. This says instruction number five. Well, number five says move C to whatever address we say. So we look here, and it says move C into address 10. So we're going to take that 17 that's in C and copy it into 10. And lo and behold, and lo and behold, there it is. We <laughs> copied it. We are now a computer. Awesome. So this program took that number and that number, put them into registers. It added them to get them in C and moved it back over to memory location 10. And then 
we did instruction six, which is end. So how do we do? That's neat. We have a computer. And you say, well, so this thing here that says add A and B, we could add another instruction, and it could be subtract A from B. Another one could be multiply A times B, divide A by B, and we can go and do all kinds of math functions, and this instruction set gets longer and longer and longer and longer and longer, and lo and behold, that's how we get a CPU to move numbers around. Memory are just little mailboxes that store numbers. If that five's there, then we had to run a program earlier to get five from the keyboard or from somewhere and put it in there, didn't we? So it's pretty simple when you start looking at it this way. And if you can understand that, you have graduated from step one of being digitally literate. How'd you do? <laughs> That's awesome. That's, that's really nice. So, is there anything you want to say, ask, or add? Add, get it, add. add yeah, I got mm -hmm. that. I think it's neat to understand that in that fundamental level. But it really is pretty simple. Mm -hmm. it is. And the thing that confuses people is they say, well, you've got an instruction set, and we don't get what that is. And you have a memory location, and that's number one, number two, number three, which are the post office boxes, mm -hmm. and then you got instruction says, it's just so we can, we can tell the computer which one to do, and we know what it's going to do when we choose that, that command. And then you've got a program where you choose which of these instructions you can do. All a program can do has got to be an instruction that the CPU knows. So you have to look in the book, and if, if you can't find it in the book, you can't do it, except some clever programmer said, well, there's a thing I want to do that's not in there. But if I do step 19, step or instruction 19, then instruction 27, 32, and 69 all together, then I get what I want. Well, then you just put them in there. And that's how programs start getting written. Does it make sense? Mm -hmm. I have a question. Okay, here it comes. Why I was knew your, this was coming. Why was your computer called the 404? Why was it called the 404? I know you have and a you reason. And you expect me to remember that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I do expect you. <laughs> well, that is actually a pretty long story. Oh, next but time, it would I guess. be kind of fun <laughs> to talk about that, and, and that would be a really, really good session. Okay. If we can go back to the picture of that computer for a minute, uh, if you look on the left of the picture, you can see the terminal. There's a screen, which actually was a TV screen in those days, a cathode ray tube, and below it was a keyboard. And those are Cherry brand switches because I tested like 100 different switches, and when you'd push on those switches, they would push down and then they'd kind of snap so you could fill it, it was feedback, mm -hmm. and it made it much easier to type. I had all these secretaries try it, because I wanted to make it real good to type. Okay, now looking at the picture again, and then over on the right side on top is the BC-404. BC stands for Billings Computer, and you can see a bunch of LED lights there that help you debug programs. That was the central processing unit. And then on the bottom below that, was the storage unit. And there are two 
magnetic floppy disk drive there so you can stick this in and you can actually store programs, you can store data, you can pull it out and put it in a filing cabinet. And since there are two, you'd actually be able to copy data from one disk to the other. And all of those are pretty interesting things. Uh, some of you know the story about how I had a hard time getting disks, and so I had to buy the company and build them myself. And, and you know, there's, there's a lot of fun stories in bringing this about. But it all starts with this simple design of this basic computer. If we can show it one more time. We have a basic computer. It consists of a CPU and memory. And the CPU moves things in and out of memory, and it manipulates or does math functions or all kinds of operations that you choose. And the way you get the CPU to do what you want is you write a program. And a program, step by step, chooses the instructions that are available for a particular CPU and tells them what order you want to do and specifies what memory location to do it with. And, and that concept is a foundation for everything else. Based on that concept, we can then start building an understanding of, of everything that takes place in a computer. And I hope that you realize how important that concept is, because it is the foundation of our digital world. And it really is how all the computers work. And if you have that foundation, then we can start looking how people made it neater and faster and more powerful, et cetera. But that is a story for another time. <laughs> Thank you. We'll see you next time.